and welcome to Art Waves, a podcast about arts and culture in small rural towns. My name is Marian Myers, and I'm curious to learn more about the arts and the impact they have on my small town of Port Perry in the rural township of Skugog, Ontario, in the traditional territory of the Mississaugas of Skugog Island. I've discovered a wide variety of passionate people creating, coaching, and connecting in my community. And today, we are talking to Chief Kelly LaRocca of the Mississaugas of Skugog Island First Nation. Welcome, Kelly. Hello. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. So, you're a chief. And so, tell us, what is your role as chief of the Mississaugas of Skugog Island First Nation? Well, the the role of chief has uh, many facets. (laughs) Um, So allow me a few minutes to to explain them all. But first and foremost, obviously, you're a community leader and uh, you've been uh, given that privilege and duty to represent your people in the best way you can. And so uh, you're a figurehead of the First Nation, I guess, and a, and a point of contact for people to outreach and connect with and learn about the First Nation. But, you know, you're also a, a cultural leader. So being that uh, we are culturally uh, Mississauga people, Mississauga Anishinaabe, um, I'm, I'm asked to try and reflect those values, those cultural values that we hold dear, but also, um, more so I feel my job is to make space and keep space for people to engage with their Mississauga Anishinaabe culture in the ways that they see fit on the timeline that they feel best about uh, engaging. Because of the residential schools experience for First Nations in Canada, um, you know, people have uh, connectivity to their culture in different ways. And, and some, some people are reconnecting with their culture after many decades, maybe, of having it um, stripped away through things like residential schools or the 60s scoop. And so often um, we just, it's our job as leadership and my job as the chief to, um, I guess, keep that space open for people to connect with cultural programming or other cultural people, um, not only from Skugog First Nation, but beyond and other uh, First Nation communities and beyond. So you're, you know, an elected figurehead, you're a cultural leader. You're also um, called upon to be somewhat of an entrepreneur. Uh, We have business interests in the community and, um, of course, most notably, the Great Blue Heron uh, is... um, connected to Skugog, but uh, you're called upon to create economy for your people because, of course, our economy uh, prior to, uh, say, the Williams Treaties being signed uh, of 1923, our economy was based in a lot of uh, natural resource harvesting and uh, hunting, fishing, trapping, that kind of thing. But post-Williams Treaties, that changed. And of course, with the onset of settlement uh, in the province, 
that has greatly encroached on our tre uh, treaty and traditional territory. So we have to find new ways of building economy, which our previous chief and council very much did with the uh, creation of the Great Blue Heron, for example. So you're called upon to be an entrepreneur. You're also um, called upon to be an advocate, obviously, as, in, as part of leadership of any organization or government. Uh, you are called upon to advocate for the best interests of your community and your people. So I'm often doing that in um, the halls of government, whether it's in Ottawa or in uh, Toronto, um, but also advocating in First Nations organizations uh, or political tribal organizations, PTOs as they're known, uh, such as the Assembly of First Nations or the Chiefs of Ontario or the Anishinaabek Nation, which is that cultural tribal affiliation group of which we're a part uh, at Scugog. So that advocacy work takes place, again, within other governments or organizations. Uh, Scugog Township, for example, another place where I would do some advocacy work. And then, of course, in the court system. So we, um, we're, uh, we've been in, involved in various judicial matters uh, um, that we've chosen to take on uh, various issues, uh, such as advocacy to um, protect the Duffins Creek or advocacy to litigate and then later negotiate the uh, settlement uh, for the 1923 Williams Treaties related grievances. So, um, yeah, there's there's a lot of different uh, aspects to the job. <laughs> so, yeah, so tell us about Williams Treaty. What, what impact did that have uh, on uh, Mississaugas? So, uh, prior to Confederation, uh, the Mississaugas of Skugog Island First Nation, along with many other First Nations um, cultural groups across the, across the country, entered into what are known as pre-confederation treaties. And so in the East, those are seen as peace and friendship treaties. We often hear them um, characterized as. And then they became more administrative as the treaties were settled westward. And so, uh, for example, we're part of Treaty 20, which covers um, part of Lake Scugog and is in our area in which we share and live. And then heading further west, if you look at, say, Saskatchewan, for example, or Alberta, indeed, there are the numbered treaties, which, again, are very sort of extremely important, but very top-heavy administrative treaties from the Crown's perspective. Um, and then when you come to British Columbia, there's only one pre-Confederation treaty, the Douglas Treaties, um, in, in and around Nanaimo. Mm -hmm. And the those treaties were entered into as i mentioned prior to confederation and then with the williams treaties it's really the most unique uh, treaty of its kind the government uh, of canada and the government of ontario wanted to promote um, settlement uh, within the province and basically um, our First Nations people believed that we were entering into the Williams Treaties to protect our rights to harvest and to have access, uh, free and unfettered access to certain areas and uh, water, water courses and things like that. Um, the government had a different idea. They took the position that the Williams Treaties served to uh, extingu extinguish and surrender any rights 
that were obtained through those pre-confederation treaties and um so there was definitely no not a meeting of the minds we'll say and really in in a in a huge way the williams treaties were used as a tool to promote uh commercial well sports fisheries so and 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 um other uh commercial hunting so if you think of organizations like um, the Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters, OFA, or uh, Ducks Unlimited. Such organizations were created in and around that, you know, that time or for that reason as, you know, they wanted to advocate for the pr proliferation of sports fisheries, for example. So that um, was a goal of the government. Also, um, I think the Williams Treaties were used by the government as a tool to promote um, an entrenched colonial policy, so to limit First Nations access to their culture and their land. So they really, um, in the government's view, were used as a as a shore as a sword. Sorry, and our communities saw the Williams Treaties as though they should be a shield, mm -hmm. and um, that that unfortunately was not interpreted to be the case for over uh, just over 90 years and it's interesting because the evidence when we finally decided to pursue the Williams treaties outside of a negotiating table we had made three attempts to negotiate uh, the third attempt failing I believe under the Harper administration but um, we had made these three attempts none of them uh, went uh, as far as we had wanted and uh, we decided finally to litigate, um, I believe that was in 2012, when we filed the action, Alderville et al. versus the Queen. And so seven First Nation signatory uh, communities filed suit against uh, the, the governments of Canada and Ontario. And uh, the, the evidence was really interesting because there was, you know, Basically, it, it came out that, you know, there was evidence of our people just can simply continuing to harvest. After the treaty was signed, it was business as usual. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the difference was is that we were being shot at by MNR officers, or at least, sorry, not me, of course, my ancestors, who were trying to engage in their harvesting activities because they felt they were being protected by those treaties. Whereas the government of Ontario, for example, thought that the treaties made harvesting illegal. In those areas and so there's plenty of <laughs> a rich history of evidence around uh, the 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 most uh, unfortunate to put it lightly uh, treatment of our people in the exercising it's hard to believe of their that harvesting. it was just so badly written that there could be that dramatic a difference of understanding well they're um yes they were very poorly written some there are theories out there which and maybe maybe they meant to be badly written and uh, you know hide what the true intentions were um in i think so uh, i think there was no meeting of the minds as to what you know was intended and perhaps the terms weren't flushed out as they could have or should have been um there was a case uh, at the supreme court level called howard with a very respected fellow, George Howard, who uh, was a chief of Hiawatha First Nation, local there in and around Keene, Keene, Ontario. Um, 
he made a comment that, you know, our people knew what we were doing. We're, we're as smart as any lawyer or doctor. That was a comment he made in his evidence, which of course we are. <laughs> we are lawyers and doctors. <laughs> but the point being, you know, perhaps at that time when the treaties were being settled, our people did not have the same idea or understanding of what was uh, in black and white as, as someone would normally expect it to be when entering into a contract. Mm-hmm. But um, at any rate, that Howard case was a, a real thorn in our side and uh, was Supreme Court jurisprudence that got in the way of our pursuit of the Williams Treaty's claims. Um, but after we pursued litigation in 2012 and the evidence uh, was coming out to, in, at court, it was uh, decided and agreed by all the parties that the government of, of Canada and Ontario, the governments basically finally acknowledged formally uh, that we have constitutionally protected um, harvesting rights in the Williams Treaties areas and that the Williams Treaties did not extinguish any of those pre-Confederation agreements that were entered into, Mm -hmm. which was a huge accomplishment. Yeah. And yet, and having those rights, while they are extremely important and a huge part of the culture, they're not, they don't necessarily have the same economic impact as they might have back then even Indeed. so you you kind of weathered the storm of the biggest opportunity and now trying to go back to um, a certain cultural way of of um, harvesting and it must be very frustrating to feel like you've lost a lot of that time it's extremely frustrating and sad for our people to have the stories of our ancestors being treated and certain being treated as criminals for exercising their skills and abilities of harvesting. Um, and yes, missing out on that time and being disconnected from the lands, um, that, that our people were quite frankly, extremely connected to culturally. But at the same time, there's hope because uh, there's our youth are really engaged in getting out on the land, learning those skills. Um, the skills have not been lost because, as I said, our people just went ahead and did it anyway. And so we're picking up those pieces. And uh, I'm really hopeful for our young people who are getting out there on the land and, and using those harvesting rights that we fought for now. But of course, there is a compensatory package as part of the Williams Treaty's negotiated settlement. And so, um, you know, that, that will, there will never be enough compensation uh, for what truly was lost. However, um, that is what seeks to address that, mm-hmm. that time lost. And how does it do that? How, how will it help to compensate for that? Well, or does it just not? We could never have, um, if we actually had a compensation package that addressed the fair market value of what was lost, we would bankrupt the government. <laughs> mm-hmm. So just putting that aside, um, the, comp- the compensation package was at the time of settlement, the biggest compensation package negotiated in Canada uh, for such a matter. and. It, uh, of course, was distributed and apportioned amongst the, the communities. I believe the 
the global settlement figure was 1.1 billion. And uh, in addition to that, there was a provision for um, um, the addition of 11, up to 11,000 acres of reserve lands to be added back to each of the seven communities. So uh, that's per community. Has that been done, or is there a timeline? Well, part of the compensation package would allow for the First Nations to go and purchase um, lands for, for sale on the free market, and then um, we would enter them into the additions to reserve process, where mm. eventually they would become part of the First Nations territory. So um, it's a compensation, the additions to reserve piece, and then uh, an apology by both of the uh, federal and provincial governments, and then of course the legal, uh, legally entrenched uh, or enshrined constitutionally protected rights to harvest. So it, uh, it will never fully compensate <laughs> for what was, for what was endured, but, uh, and, and lost, but at the same time, our communities are adept at being resourceful and, uh, thriving, uh, in spite of it all. Yes. <laughs> so yes. we yeah. will make it happen. And in this immediate community, you've had um, quite a, an impact. The Mississaugas of Skiugog Island First Nation has had quite an impact um, of, of, you know, very positive impact culturally for a relatively small group. And that always so, just sort of surprises <laughs> me, you know, how, it, how few people can have such a huge impact on this community. And it's been um, in generosity through donations to the community. It's been wide ranging in the donations. Mississaugas of Skugog Island First Nation Donation Committee certainly was the biggest uh, donor to the Skugog Council for the Arts for many, many years. You know, well, you, all in probably our biggest donor and supporter and many other um, organizations in the community can say the same thing. And so describe that, how, culturally, where does that fit in, that generosity? I'm really proud of our community for making that decision as a community to, to uh, keep the donations, uh, well, to create the donations program and keep it alive in spite of the changeover in the casino model that we had. And, in uh was it 2016 and uh in spite of covid <laughs> mm -hmm. um so you know just to give a bit of the background um when our when our community back in i guess it would have been the late 90s was uh looking into the opportunity to bid for casino gaming within our community um our chief, Gary Edgar, our um, chief at the time and his council um, took a risk, really. They, they decided that it would, it would make sense to um, bring the, the opportunity of gaming to the community and, and really let the community decide on whether they were willing to go in debt to open a, a big business, whether they were willing to give up a third of their land base, which was already very small, um, to support uh, economic developments uh, opportunity and what model the community wanted. Did it want to engage in commercial gaming like Rama or did it want to engage in charitable gaming? And uh, 
overwhelmingly 100% in favor of the charitable model uh, was was our community and and they uh, voted in favor of of having the the charitable model because they wanted to give back and that is a, a really a caring for others and and sharing your resources whether it, the the resources are monetary or otherwise that is a a cultural um I guess principle or law mm-hmm. of our people and and uh so they they really stood by that and I, I thought that was great you know there's a there's a community that had basically nothing <laughs> was in the middle and, of a cornfield and, and decided and to if give, we make money doing this we we're going to take this back. big risk and if we make money we're going to give it back to the community yes and and we ended up switching to a commercial model in 2016 and uh had no no legal obligation of any kind to continue charitable giving and that mm-hmm. just it wasn't even a question the community just continued on mm-hmm. so i'm i'm really uh i'm grateful for that i think it's built a lot of um yeah, social capital i guess would be the <laughs> the term uh goodwill uh, it's built a lot of good relations between ourselves and the town and you know even before the great blue heron we were contributors <laughs> and i think that that's that's a point that i guess gets lost is um you know our treaty territory is is this place and so from our community's perspective sharing those resources the land the natural resources the water all of that was uh, was goodwill and social capital even before the great mm-hmm. blue heron but oh yeah but that tradition is carried on yeah and and having to actually buy your own land um i indeed <laughs> i was just stunned when i found that out when i first moved here yes yeah. we were forcibly moved off of the northernmost point of scugog island and uh, put into an area called Coldwater, which is kind of near Aurelia. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were there for a couple of years. And of course, resources were very scarce for First Nations people because they were told they could not hunt fish, trap gather, there was no harvesting. And so often the communities had to rely on um, rations of sugar and flour that were provided by, by um, government agents who would come and visit the communities every so often. So there was no food sovereignty that was gone mm-hmm. and uh and the food you got was a precursor to diabetes that's indeed not very so helpful why there's so much ill health and obesity and diabetes within our communities across canada because you know white white refined sugar and flour is, is not the traditional staple of our diet right so so that's what our people had to survive on though for so many years and of course now we see it as comfort food on some level <laughs> but uh we're getting back to that harvesting activity and so that's changing thankfully but we were in cold water uh, with pretty scarce resources and chief crane at the time decided we're going back to Scugog. that was the land of plenty that's where we went and fished and gathered rice and you know harvested berries and and let's go back mm-hmm. and so they came back to find that the water frontage and most of the land on Lake Scugog had been taken up by private ownership. 
and uh, except this one figure eight patch of landlocked yeah, in the middle uh, space of in the middle of the northern end of the island. And so that's what we decided to drive back, to, to buy back uh, on a private sale with uh, our treaty annuity money. Okay. Back in the and day. so you, you've now used that treaty money to buy the land that you're on now. So you won't be, are you still trying to buy more land? So that, well, the treaty annuity money we had saved up way back when, um, that was expended on the purchase back of our reserve. Yes. But, uh, um, the, uh, yes, the treaty settlement money from, which of course the treaty annuity money in the past was an absolute pittance. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know, going forward, uh, since the settlement in 2018 of the Williams treaties, that settlement money from the treaty dispute will, yes, be used uh, to purchase back uh, land for our community. Fabulous. Describe your community. Who are the people? Um, where are they? I'm uh, fascinated by the fact that not everybody that is considered Mississaugas of Scugog Island First Nation band members are right there. They're all over. Yes, that's true. So we have... Um, I always like to say our community is small but mighty. <laughs> we have 250 members in total and our constituents, I guess, would, you know, the mainstream would see them as constituents, but we, we refer to ourselves as members or citizens or even Dazajig, which is the Anishinaabek term for those who belong. Mm. So our people are both on and off uh, reserve, the reserve territory or the First Nation territory. Um, and, um, you know, there are historical reasons why our people sort of ended up in certain spaces and places, but, uh, we have, I guess, approximately 70, uh, members on reserve with their families. And then the remaining of the 250 are, uh, sort of dispersed across Canada with a huge contingent in North Vancouver. And then, um, another pretty big contingent in and around the Toronto and Niagara region and uh, mostly Fort, Fort Erie, Niagara region. And um, we have a member in Hawaii <laughs> and a couple in the States. <laughs> so uh, we're, we're a bit all over the place, so, and, which makes for interesting community And will all be different as to how they move to those areas. Mm -hmm. Just as with anybody. Like right. I marriage, mean, a job, a job. Uh, going to be with friends, with family. So for, for Scugog, we, you know, I guess it would have been prior to 19, I, I don't quote me on the dates, but prior to the 1940s, it was, you had to have a pass to leave the community <laughs> because it was an artificially bordered reservation territory. Mm -hmm. And so when the federal government basically named us reserve number 34. That's when, you know, our people had limitations on the things they could do and access. So for example, um, if you wanted to become educated, you had to relinquish your, your band membership and your, your Indian status. If you wanted to speak, speak English, you used to have to do that. If you wanted or learn to speak English, if you, uh, wanted a job, you had to do that. And so it didn't promote a lot of <laughs> free, free, uh, and unfettered, uh, access to, yeah. 
to uh, things like schooling and jobs and and opportunity. So um, it used to also is uh, also it used to be that well it was that our veterans would lose Indian status if they fought uh, in the Great Wars, for example. So uh, that has um, it's created um, that that's what's created a lot of the I don't want to say diaspora, but the movement of movement people. of people yeah. because yeah. they went to seek opportunity elsewhere. So, for example, we had a veteran, um, Lambert Marsden. He moved from uh, this area all the way out west because after he served in the Second World War, he wanted to, um, you know, have a family and have opportunity, and so he ended up taking a job teaching paratroopers and and uh, went out west to do that. So yeah. that's where him, he ended up settling with his family and actually worked, um, pardon me, I believe he worked for uh, the railroad as well. Uh, but anyway, he um, he had six kids out there and then of course they all had kids and they all had kids and so on. So he's got quite a large family, but uh, his six kids are all uh, PhDs and engineers. So he did something right. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Good for him. Against all odds. And then, you know, we had um, some of our members go out to, and find work in and around the Niagara region. And um, we have um, some of our members, you know, were steel workers and they would travel around and go to the big skyscrapers in New York and help build those and in Toronto and yeah, so, become yeah. crane operators yeah. and yeah. their dangerous jobs. Totally. That they totally. would take on. Mm -hmm. So that's how we ended up with people kind of all over the place. But most of the people in the community had a history of working for General Motors and or working uh, on some of the farms in and around uh, the Scugog Township now. Yeah. And um, so what's next for you 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 personally as chief as you've mentioned go out and help with a lot of different um programs is too um, minimalist a word for it but where where you're helping on different initiatives um beyond skewgog what are they what's next what are you working on now as a community, what are we? And you, as a, as chief, what, on on behalf of your community, what are you working on these days? Well, we just managed to um, obtain clean drinking water for our community, uh, December fifteenth, twenty twenty one. So we're pretty proud and happy about that. <laughs> that was a bit of a labor of love for the community, for sure. And now our community is engaged in uh, wastewater treatment expansion. I, I think. Um, the people would be really surprised to know if to visualize Skewgog, which is literally 30 minutes north of Oshawa, literally 60 minutes northeast of Toronto, was a place without clean drinking water. Yes, it's just so hard to get my I, I can't get my head around that. I, I just I I try to understand and I, I just don't get it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Aging infrastructure needs and, and no ability to properly uh, and consistently um, treat water is basically what our issue was. Um, 
And so we had been sort of saving, advocating, you know, planning, and it, it's it's really just been a labor of of love of planning and and doing the work with our, you know, we, we within our community to to get that project going. I mean, we we did end up receiving some amounts of funding from uh, the Small Communities Fund uh, program and. Uh, I believe ISC, or what is formerly known as Indian Affairs, um, they contributed, I guess, four and a half million, but the First Nation paid for the lion's share of that project. And we would have, if we had to do it alone, we would have. Um, you had internet access before you had clean water. Yes. Like, it's just and, uh, bizarre. I'm really, I don't know, I'm just proud of our people that we we were that committed to do it and and... And uh, our people said, well, re- remember, Kelly, like, <laughs> that is uh, a fiduciary obligation of the federal government. And um, all that settlement and encroachment uh, within our treaty and traditional territories has created this issue. And so you make sure to get out there and advocate for that, uh, mm-hmm. for that money from other sources as well. And so council uh, did that work and they uh they advocated and so yeah we we did receive other bits of of funding for the project and we're happy to receive that but uh we ended up doing the majority of it alone and it's a point of pride really Mm -hmm. uh the wastewater expansion much in the same you know we we see that as a as a way obviously to support our people um but also it's it's a way to support uh our lake Mm-hmm. Yeah, care about source source water protection and the environment, and who knows, maybe uh, if all goes well, it's a, it'll be a way to service the entire island or at least part of the island, if uh, if all the other governments can get their heads together and and really think outside the box. Yeah, which I have to have hope that we will. Yeah, <laughs> you know, our our next conversation, I think we have to talk to about. Um, other aspects of the culture, um, music, uh, gatherings, and we've got to get into that. And, and but we'll have to save that for another conversation. I think that might be. I really did want to say when you when you asked who our people are, you know, I mentioned the sort of the demographics of people, but our people are extremely talented people. We have. As you, well, you know some of our artists from locally, mm-hmm. um, and they are—they have more talent in their baby finger than I could in my lifetime. But they, you know, <laughs> well, look at your water tower. I mean, your water amazing. tower is a beautiful right? thing, <laughs> and uh, a, their work is impeccable. And uh, you know, we have, uh, well, you know, John Caldwell. He's quite um, popular in the town and in the region, and well known. And and you know, he does a lot of amazing. Um, indigenous themed artwork but he also does his own he has his completely own style and it's you know i don't know how how i'm bad with art genres but i it's his own style i don't want yeah it's it's this cross of a of a comic and his child his passion and his childhood for the the games that they played um, mm-hmm. you know, the electronic games. And mm-hmm. so it's got that it whole pop. feel. It's I, like, a, it's a, it's a bit of a pop culture yeah. yes. crossover 
uh, retro. It's very comic interesting style. Yeah, it's and it is his own, and it's so exacting. His his he's just so exacting in how he does it. It's pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. His brother is. Uh, is an art historian he's a you know he does his own work his own pieces but he's also an, an antiques dealer and a vintage vintage clothing yeah. um retailer it, it's amazing so he's got a thriving online business uh we have an artist out in waterloo uh luke swinson who is uh doing a lot of indigenous theme work as well but he also has his own style of painting and it, he's just incredibly talented he's just got a huge contract with the city of waterloo uh, his father, uh, Gus Swinson, used to do graphic art for, for J. Crew, and now he's doing a big art installation for Canadian Tire's 100th anniversary. So we, we've got a ton of great talent locally. Uh, Sharifa Marsden is um, a painter, sculptor, and she's also, she's done murals. She is a jewelry maker. That's her, I think, what she's, I guess, becoming most known for and really infusing... Um, Anishinaabe uh, cultural references in her jewelry work that kind of uh, is a take on a lot of that uh, Haida silversmithing that you see mm -hmm. that's so popular. But her her artwork is so interesting and very sought after and hard to hard to get my hands on. But I just love the love the stuff. So we have just. I really and we didn't even talk about like the the drumming circles oh, and dancers that and that's that's another thing. So we. We had a very small powwow this year, and uh, we did that because of COVID. But next year is going to be our twenty fifth uh, mm -hmm. oh, cool. powwow, and it's going to be huge. And I and we, we're so excited to reopen it to the public. But Skugog has its own um, big drum now, which is traditionally a, a, a man's drum, and that is um, a big deal for Skugog given our small size. I think uh, we'll have so that drum so proud of at our culture days uh, on September 24th. Right on. We've got that, you know, the the uh, drumming circle book to come and uh, perform right on Queen Street. Yeah. Our uh, own people are getting really involved in reconnecting with culture, and you can just see it starting to really flourish, and it makes me extremely proud. Yeah, and so you should be. And uh, Chi Miigwech for joining us today. And uh, to our audience, Chi Miigwech for spending time with us today. And thanks to The Wanted for their song Before the Fall and the Ontario Trillium Foundation for the grant that got this done. Visit scugogarts.ca to get the scoop on what we're up to. And um, hit the subscribe button to join us every Tuesday for an episode of Art Waves. And again, thank you, Chief Kelly LaRocca. Thank you, miigwech.